This is Anthony Arino, and you're listening to In the Arena. Step into the arena. What I like most about text message is that no matter what, you know that the person that you sent the text message to received the text message. Even if they're not getting back to you, you do know that they read it and you know that they're aware that you're pursuing them or that you have something you need to share with them. That's not always true for email. And in fact, I find that when I send an email, I have this great fear that it's now at the very bottom of the inbox because there's been 2,200 emails that have come in after my email was sent. So I want to give a huge shout out to today's sponsor, MailTag.io. MailTag.io is a Chrome browser extension for your Gmail that allows you to track and schedule your emails. It's super helpful, and I highly recommend it if you're in sales, specifically because you receive real-time alerts on your desktop as soon as your prospect opens your emails or clicks on a link within your email. And that problem I described here at the beginning, you don't know whether or not they saw the email because there's so much incoming for most of us that we can't keep up with the email. In this case, you can set up a follow-up sequence so that another email goes out if there's not a response, and it will literally push your email back to the top of that inbox. So important right now when so many of us live in our inbox and where it's so difficult to get attention. So go check out mailtag.io. You'll find the link in the show notes and take advantage of the 14-day trial. James Clear, I remember I started blogging December 28th, 2009. I'd been like dabbling a little bit, but I started blogging in earnest. And by that, I mean every day. So every single day I write a blog post and I have for about nine years. You started blogging, I think, very, very close to that time. And at some point, somebody introduced us. And I remember we talked on the phone one time and then I've seen your work from afar, but you and I, I don't think have ever... I know we've never met face-to-face before today, but I don't know that we've ever connected, even though we've both been doing the same thing from a little C-Bus, Ohio 614, yeah. for a long time. When did you start writing at James Clear? Yeah, well, it's a pleasure to finally connect and do this. So let's see. I started my very first blog, which isn't around anymore, in like late 2010. And I just kind of fumbled around for like two years. You know, I like had to, all the things everybody goes through, right? You have to like teach yourself how to build an email list and how to set up a website and why would someone buy a product and all that stuff. And then, so now I refer to that period as the period where I incubated my skill set. Then let's see, around November of 2012 is when I started writing at jamesclear.com. And for the next three years, I wrote a new article every Monday and Thursday. And so that was like the writing habit that really kind of set me on the trajectory. The same way that you mentioned, like, you know, you started blogging in earnest and doing it consistently. Yeah. That was the thing that really changed it for me. And so I did that for three years and the site grew quickly and I was able to leverage that audience into getting introduced to book agents and meeting publishers and all that stuff. And then so at the end of 2015, I signed the book deal to write what is now Atomic Habits and then spent the next like three years writing and researching and planning all that. 
Well, you've done a lot of the work, the research work. You were already steeped in there. My son is at Denison. He's a theater major there. Oh, really? I'm going to watch him in Skechers tonight on the day we're recording this. Oh, and that's he, so he, incredible. I had no idea. He's a good writer. Yeah. And I actually read one of his papers for school, and I'm like, did you write this or did you <laughs> plagiarize this? And he's like, Dad, do you want to see my other work? And I said, yeah, I better see your other work. You're a good writer. And now he wrote something for the Fringe Festival that they, yeah. they, they rejected because it's too long. But it's 50 pages is the first act and 50 pages is the second act. It's 100 pages. And I read it and I'm like, this kid's a good writer. So he's tall, he's handsome, he's funny, he's and like, smart, he and he's a good writer. for fun. Like, what just happened? Yeah, what happened? And it's good. And I look at that and I think, well, he's definitely got a head start on me. What did you major in at Denison? <laughs> it's the first entrepreneurial thing that I did, really, looking back. I didn't know it at the time, but... I looked around and I was a science guy. So I was taking biology, chemistry, physics classes, stuff like that. And I enjoyed it, but nothing was like really jumping out at me. And at some point I was told that you could do this thing where you could design your own major and you would propose the set of classes to the academic affairs council. And it had to show a reasonable progression. But I was like, huh, that sounds pretty good. Like I just get to pick out what I take. And so I picked it and we ended up going with that and I submitted it. And so it was still mostly science classes technical name for it was biomechanics because it involved like some anatomy and like sports performance stuff too. So I did that and then graduated four years later and then went to business school at Ohio State. So yeah, it was like, it was kind of an entrepreneurial thing to do to look at the options and say, I don't really like any of those. I'll design my own. I did the same thing at Capital. I didn't design the major. I was political science and English literature and I tried to major in writing, but they never offered the classes because it's a small school. And I eventually went and said, I'm tired of reading all the stuff that you give me. I want to read what I want to read. Mm. And can I just do that? And then I spent the last year reading 13 of Shakespeare, you know, Don Quixote, Brothers Karamazov. I got to just read. They said, yes, I wanted to read like, was it like an independent study or something? Yeah. And I got to design what the course should know that that exists more, you know, like that. I mean, how much better does that sound than being like told to read something that you don't really Well, And why would you not read, you know, the Iliad and the Odyssey? Why would you not read something that's been around that long? And it's the Lindy effect, which I know you know what that means, but we'll define it. The longer something's been around, the longer it's likely to be around, especially works of art like that. And I'm like, why am I reading stuff from now when I could be reading something that's been around for so long, it has to have value. I guess they're worried that people will like, just try to like use it to game the system or something. But if you're a fairly curious and self-motivated, it is just a way better way to learn, you know, especially if you're a reader. Okay. First, I have to tell you this. I told you this off of the air, but I'm just saying it here for people listening. So they know your book is wonderful. I'm insanely jealous of you as a writer. You're such a good writer. You're a smart thinker. It's just Atomic Habits is really, really good. So so I want to make sure people hear that because we're going to sell them the book at some point (laughs) or I will. I'll do it for you. I'm glad you liked it. It's spectacular. You and I also share an origin story. So both of our origin stories start with a brain injury. Oh, man. Okay, so we my... We know we have this much in common. I had an arterial venous malformation, which is a big group of arteries and veins that grows into a knot on the back of the front right temporal lobe. I was in California playing rock and roll at night and working in the daytime. I had a grand mal seizure. I came back to Columbus. I went to Cincinnati and I had the arterial venous malformation removed along with a piece of bruised brain mm. at the back of my front right temporal lobe. And I thought that's a pretty unique story. And then I read yours and I'm like, okay, so you ended up having your skull and your brain damaged to the point where you were induced into a coma. What happened? And I know what happened, but how did you get hit in the face with a baseball bat? Yeah. So 
Baseball is a really big part of my story. You know, I grew up in a household where sports and school, but sports as well, were very important. My dad played professionally in the minor leagues for the St. Louis Cardinals. So, you know, growing up, I always wanted to play professionally as well and was really excited about that. And I played all sorts of things as I was growing up and then decided to start focusing on baseball. And when I was in high school, I had this really serious injury where I was hit in the face with this baseball bat. And it was an accident. A classmate of mine took a swing and bat kind of slipped out of his hands and I was a few feet away. And it, you know, came basically rotated through the air and came, hit me right between the eyes. So it shattered both eye sockets, broke my nose, broke the bone behind my nose, your ethmoid bone, which is like fairly deep inside. Wow. And I did not realize at the moment that it happened. Like, I don't really have any memory of the moment of impact, but I did not realize how seriously I had been injured. Like I kind of, you know, stumbled around. I was bleeding a lot. I had a friend give me his shirt to plug my broken nose. And I walked down to the nurse's office at the school and was helped down there and uh, started answering questions for the next like 10 or 15 minutes. But I wasn't answering them very well. Like I was, you know, they'd ask like, what year is it? And I was like, 1998, Wrong. 2002, or who's the president? And I was like, Bill Clinton is George Bush. Although that would have been right had it been 1998. But um, <laughs> so, I was in another place. And anyway, pretty quickly after that, lost consciousness, started to struggle with basic functions, couldn't breathe on my own, couldn't swallow, had to be air cared to the hospital. You know, the nurses are like pumping breaths into me. I went into surgery. I had multiple seizures over the next 24 hours. And then, as you mentioned, I eventually was placed into this medically induced coma because I I just wasn't stable enough to undergo surgery. So the next morning I woke up there, they released me from the coma and I couldn't smell. And so the nurse said, well, why don't you blow your nose so that you can, you know, get all this blood and stuff out of there and we'll see if your sense of smell returns. And it did. But when I blew my nose, I also like forced air through the cracks in my shattered eye socket, which starts to like push my eye out. So then my eye It's like a horror movie. Yeah, it just keeps getting worse, right? But that was really the beginning of a very long process of recovery. I couldn't drive for eight of the next nine months. I had double vision because of the eye and facial fractures. I was practicing basic motor patterns, like walking in a straight line when I, you know, went to my first physical therapy session. So yeah, it was just it was a long road. Did the brain swell? Is that what the induced coma was? Yeah, yeah. That's what caused the three seizures over that 24-hour period. In addition to me losing the consciousness and struggling with a lot of those other basic functions. It was like, you know, the world's worst concussion, basically. Yeah. It was like just a really severe swelling and internal brain injury. So the punchline of this and how it kind of comes back to Atomic Habits is that at that time, I did not have a language for it. I wouldn't have said, oh, I'm just trying to get 1% better or I'm trying to get better habits or whatever. But I was forced to start small because I couldn't, I couldn't like, I wasn't at a stage there where I could flip a switch and be better overnight or where I could make some radical improvement. And so I just did little stuff and like none of it is earth shattering or life changing. Like I would make my bed every day or I would prepare for class for an hour or I started going to the gym consistently and working out and by themselves, no single habit was a big deal. But that was really the time in my life when I had to practice this idea of let me just try to find little ways to get better. And ultimately, my return to baseball was not smooth. I was cut from the team the next year. And eventually, I was able to make a college team, but I didn't start the first year. Second season, my sophomore season, I started. My junior year, I was a captain. And then my senior year, I ended up being an academic All-American. And so it was really that process of like five or six years. Rebuilding. uh, Yeah, of that injury to ultimately... I never ended up playing professionally, but 
I do feel like I was able to fulfill my potential. And so that's kind of why I care so much about habits and how it connects to my personal story. It was the method through which I feel like I fulfilled my potential. And I think if you understand how your habits work, they can be a path for other people to do that as well. I should still be fronting a hair metal band in LA. I mean, honestly, (laughs) but I'm missing the hair now, but I should be. So in the following months, you started working. I did the same thing. So after leaving surgery, I was in the hospital for six days after brain surgery. And I immediately started lifting weights, heavy weights, and just trying to rebuild. Did you have any kind of other issues? I had anger issues. Hmm. And that was sort of my- Emotionally, there was like a difference there? Yeah. And it lasted for about a year. I just noticed that it was, I was very, very tightly wound and maybe because of a response to the stress and maybe the response to actually having a physical piece of the brain you know, yeah. removed. I'm just you had actual tissue removed. Yeah, yeah, tissue removed. And I always wondered if you took an animal and just held it down and cut off a piece of its brain, would it be somewhat angry afterwards? Probably. Maybe. Yeah. And you know, it wasn't I just started to recognize consciously, like, wait a second, I'm getting out of my car to fight somebody and I don't even know how to fight. Yeah. You know, I'm not a good fighter, so this right. would be bad. But there was something that triggered that. And it might also have been phenobarbital and sure. yeah, know, there dilantin a of, uh, and a bunch of other things. Situation, right? There are a lot of new inputs there, but that's very interesting. The response that I usually give when people ask me that is, honestly, I don't know. It's not possible to rewind the tape and play that back in different scenarios. So who knows? Maybe I would be a little bit different had it not happened. I think from what I can tell, from what I remember of myself before and after, and from what you know, my interactions are with friends and family, I think I got lucky and mostly was able to recover in a full way. But yeah, I don't know. It's, you know, maybe I lost a few IQ points. It's hard to say. Maybe you gained some. Maybe, probably. <laughs> I tell everybody the part of my brain that was cut out was the part that was holding me back. That's you know, I, was, I had to get rid of that to be able to move <laughs> forward. Good. Okay. I knew who Brailsford was before reading your book because oh, I'm really? a cycling fan. Uh-huh. And I watched every tour while Armstrong was there. All of it. I mean, I watched every, I would go home and just watch the tour. I rode a bicycle until I lost a friend who got hit by a car. And then seven other people that I rode with were all hit by cars in the last two years. So then I've now given up cycling because there's just too much distraction. And uh, I lost somebody I went to business school with. He was a cyclist and just got hit coming around a blind turn. This was one of the safest riders I knew, you know, and of course it would be him, the safest, one of the best riders, you know, who was a teacher at DeSales, uh, Bob Leonard. So he went and then everybody else has been hit and I don't think it's safe anymore, but I'm still a fan. And Brailsford's known for the aggregation of marginal gains. And I love that concept. And I loved it when I heard it. And I've always wanted a deeper dive into that Mm. because there were so many little things just, and remember the Tour de France, you know, is going to be won by 77 seconds. So, you know, there's not going to be a huge gap between one and two. 20. 21 days. days, Yeah. And 2,200 miles. And the gap is... 70 seconds. Yeah. It's always tight, really tight between one and number two. Can you set up the big idea in Atomic Habits with this aggregation of marginal gains? Because a lot of the things, even when I read the book, even thinking about doing one push-up, that does nothing. Mm. That, that single push-up. And I want people to start to get an understanding about what this book is really about and how these little things start to stack over time. So this is one of the things that's interesting and easy to dismiss about habits is that they seem insignificant in the moment, right? Any one little change seems like nothing. It's easy to overlook. Brailsford, so he came in and British cycling was pretty mediocre at that time. You know, they had never won a Tour de France when he became the performance director. They had won, I think, a single gold medal and it was like back in 1908. And so for a long time, they had just kind of been middling in the world stage. So he used this concept that, as you mentioned, he called the aggregation of marginal gains. 
And the basic way that he described it was the 1% improvement in nearly everything that we do. And so they made a bunch of improvements that other professional cycling teams would make. Like they figured out how to get slightly lighter tires on the bike. They had their riders wear these electrically heated overshorts so they could ride for longer and train for longer. They asked each rider to wear a little biofeedback sensor so they could adjust the programs to each individual. But then they did a bunch of things that other teams weren't doing and that you like wouldn't expect from a cycling team. So they hired a surgeon to come in and teach them how to wash their hands to reduce the risk of catching a cold or getting the flu. They split tested different types of massage gels to see which one led to the best form of muscle recovery so that they could, you know, figure out how to get people to recover faster from each training session. It's two of my favorites. They painted the inside of the team truck white so that they could spot little bits of dust that might get in the gears and like, you know, degrade the performance of the bikes. And then that's obsession. Yes. Right. And like the craziest one is they figured out the type of pillow and mattress that led to the best night's sleep for each rider. And then when they went to major events like the Tour de France, they would bring that on the road with them so that they could have a good night's sleep at the hotels. So Brailsford thought like, hey, if we can actually do this, right, if we can make all these little 1% changes, then he laid out this challenge where he said, I think we can win a Tour de France in five years. And he ended up being wrong. They won the Tour de France in three years. And then they repeated again the fourth year with a different rider. And then I think they had one year off. And they Is it Wiggins, so Wiggins first? Wiggins and first. The, and then Froome? And then Froome. And then I think they had one year off. And then Froome won two more. And then this last year, I think it was Thomas Durant. Thomas? Yeah, like Durant. Yeah. Anyway, so they've won five of the last six now. And that, you know, that's fascinating and incredible just in its own right. And they've done it with multiple riders. And the Tour de France is, you know, you know this better than I do, but there is like a team component to it, right? You have like people riding around you. But I think people could like look at that and dismiss it and say, oh, it's just, you know, one freak athlete or something. But at the Olympics in London in 2012, they had dozens of riders, dozens of events, and they won 70% of the gold medals available. Then they go to Rio in 2016, same thing, they won 60% of the gold medals available. And I think the main takeaway that I take from that, you know much more about cycling than I do, but my point, the core point of this chapter is that 1% improvements are easy to overlook and we think, oh, it's just a nice little cherry on top of our performance. But actually adhering to that philosophy, living by a standard of continuous improvement each day is not just nice to have. It actually is like the master key that can unlock elite performance. And that's true whether we're talking about cycling or your own productivity habits or anything else. The pillow doesn't do it, you know, and the speck of dust in the van doesn't do it. But when you start looking at the obsessed I mean, there were hundreds of things that they looked at, oh, yeah. right? I mean, hundreds. And I'm just saying the ones that are public, they probably have a ton that they don't even talk about. Yeah, you know? they wouldn't want to talk about right. it. Somebody else would pick it up. I say this at the very end of the book and the end of Atomic Habits that the holy grail of habit change is not a single 1% improvement. It's a thousand of them. You know, you're looking to, I chose the phrase atomic habits for three reasons. The first one is what you would expect. Like atomic can mean tiny or small. And I do think that habits should be small and easy to do. You know, like that's a core piece of my philosophy. The second meaning is the one that's overlooked and the one that we're talking about here, which is the word atomic can also mean the fundamental unit in a larger system. So atoms build into molecules, molecules build into compounds and so on. Right. And you need those little 1% changes to layer on top of each other. And then the third and final meaning is the source of immense energy or power. Right. I think if you combine all three of those, you understand the narrative arc of the book, which is you make changes that are small and easy to do, and you layer them on top of each other like units in a larger system. And if you do that, you can end up with some really powerful results in the long run. And you just described how smart and nerdy you are and going through that <laughs> explanation for the title of the book. 
It's a really smart book and you're a really smart guy. I like that so much about the book because it is not only a well-written book, but it's a well-thought-out structure and framework with very, very meticulously documented facts and things that we know actually work. So that being one of the keys to better performance is actually having things that are true. So let's talk about what's not true. I'm looking at one of my books over there, so we'll talk about that. I believe people desperately need goals. And you and I are in wild agreement that they provide direction. Mm. And I always tell people, you need to know what you want. So if you want what you want, you need to know that. But then in that first book, the first chapter is called Me Management or The Art of Self-Discipline. And when I handed that book to the first publisher, you and I had this conversation not being recorded. The first publisher said, why on earth would you start a book with self-discipline when everyone hates that? (laughs) (laughs) And I thought, well, the rest of the book is useless if we don't get this part at the beginning of it. And he could not accept it. He just couldn't. We parted ways very quickly after that conversation. (laughs) I'm like, you don't get it. But you might even not like the word disciplines. We might have a good argument about the word disciplines. But for me, it's something that you repeat every day, which you would call a habit. Because it has to be done. And if you do it every day, the results stack up over time. And it's just worth having the routine maintenance like you do with brushing your teeth and taking a shower. You need to follow up on the commitments that you made. You know, you need to review your calendar. You need to prep for sales calls in my world. So I even use the example of a goal. If you say a goal is to run a marathon, that goal ends, you're done. And But if it's, I want to be healthy for my entire lifetime. I want to be mobile. I want to have endurance. I want to have energy. I want to be able to play with my great-grandchildren. That's a different kind of goal. And you're going to need a set of disciplines to get there. So explain why systems are better than goals. So this is coming from someone who has been very goal-oriented for a long time. That was like my default. Set goals for all kinds of things. Set goals for the weight I wanted to lift in the gym, for the grades I wanted in school, for what I wanted my business to do in the next quarter. And at some point, I realized sometimes I achieve these goals that I write down, and then a lot of the time I don't. So clearly, having the goal is not the thing that is determining whether I'm making progress or not. And so the question I had was like, well, what is it then? You know, like, what is the thing that makes a difference? And in my language in the book, I would say it's the system that you follow, or sometimes people will say the process. I would say your system is the collection of habits that you follow each day. Mm-hmm. And The point here is not that goals are useless. And so I try to make that caveat in that section. And what you mentioned is that goals are helpful for getting a sense of direction, for having a sense of clarity. But once you know what direction you're moving in, I think it's more effective to, metaphorically speaking, set the goal on the shelf and spend all of your time focused on the system. So some examples I like to give, like say you were a basketball coach, you know, the goal is to win the championship at the end of the year. Everybody's very clear about that. But if you spent your whole time focused on the championship or thinking about that, or if you, you know, at the end of each game, you want to have the best score on the scoreboard. But if you just during the game, just watch the scoreboard the whole time, like you would never win. And so instead, if you focus on your system, which I would say is like the way you recruit assistant coaches and players, the drills that you do during practice, the way that you review film in between games, if you focused only on that, would you still be able to achieve that goal of winning the championship? I think, yes, you probably actually would be in a better position. So this is true for anything, right? Like the goal might be to write a best-selling book, but the system is, you know, how you collect ideas and sit your butt in the chair each day and that type of thing. And I think the thing that really clarified it for me was when I finally realized that achieving a goal only changes your life for the moment. So if you walk into a room and your room is messy or your garage is cluttered or something like that, you could set a goal to have a clean room and you could get real motivated for three hours and clean it all up. And at the end of it, you have a nice clean room. 
But if you don't change the sloppy, messy pack rat habits that led to a dirty room in the first place, then you turn around in three weeks and you have a messy room again. And so we think that the outcomes are the thing that needs to change. We think that the goal is the thing that needs to change. But actually, what needs to change are the habits behind the outcome. If you fix the inputs, the outputs will fix themselves naturally. And so that's really what I'm trying to get at here. And you're right. And I think so many people focus on the output or the outcome. And is it Parcells or Walsh who said, you know, you don't change the score. The score takes care of itself, yeah, right? Walsh. The, the yeah. Walsh, yeah. So the score takes care of itself. The scoreboard never lies. Mm-hmm. I mean, the scoreboard is always going to tell you the truth. Right. But looking at it does nothing except just give you some feedback on where you are and if what you're doing is working. Right. And so that's the process. I think that's a good way to define it. Well, you just that I like the word you just used, which is feedback. Goals and whether you've achieved them or not, it's just a piece of feedback. But that feedback needs to be inputted into the overall system. Right. And that's really what you're focused on. So it's not the goals are totally useless, but it is that we I think we often overvalue them. It's a feedback loop. Right. I mean, so you have this goal, you do something, it's moving you closer, it's moving you further away. And habits in your vernacular, habits can move you in either direction. Right. And you know which direction you're going. So you know if the habit's working or not, because you're getting the immediate feedback. Am I getting closer to what I want or further away from what I want? Right. And most people end up further away. You wrote this on page 39 in the book, decide what type of person do you want to be? And you talk about small wins. So the first thing you said is decide what type of person you want to be. I want to comment on that for a second, because it's an interesting question to challenge someone with. And I think it's worth talking about. You probably follow Simon Sinek and his work. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so he's smart, and his work has gotten a lot of attention, especially Start With Why. Sure. And there was something about the Start With Why that bothered me when I read it. And I'm like, but it's not. And my why isn't your why. And we attract people who might have the same why. That's possible. But it's Start With Who. And I always thought, well, it's the identity. It's the identity. People do something because they think that's what they are or what they want to be. And then when they're aligned and they're congruent, they tend to be what they say they are because they're congruent. So all these things that they say manifest in the real world. And I have written this and I've also did a YouTube video about it. When people say they want something, I ask them the question, if I had a video camera on you from the time you woke up until the time you went to bed, would there be evidence on that video that you are in fact what you say you are and you are moving towards that? And for a lot of people, the answer is you wouldn't see very much that would indicate this. So you have a framework in there, and I'm going to call it a philosophy because this isn't cited. If you took this from somewhere else, it's not cited, or I didn't see any citation in this. You flipped the idea of you set the goal and you go one direction and you flipped it the other way. So you flipped it to you start with identity and you move outward from there, not to identity. You start from what you want to be. I think that's in wild opposition to the way people think about this. So that's the part where I read this and I'm like, this is in, it's 100% right. I'm now 100% agreement with you. But the rest of the world does not look at this personal development and the growth the same way that you do. And if you were to pick this book up and just get that, you've more than gotten your money's worth. I mean, if you just read that right there, I think there's enough value to work on for a long, long period of time. How did you get that? What happened that caused you to say, it's the identity, it's not the why or the what, it's the who? So this is probably one of the only truly unique ideas that's in the book. So everything else in the book is like heavily cited. There's like 300 citations throughout all the, you know, there's more than one per page. But so I had this idea sitting in the passenger seat of a car driving through West Virginia. Naturally, no idea why. Right. Yeah, yeah, naturally, that's no what idea occurred. why that came up. But anyway, that's where it happened. I wrote an article on it while I was sitting there in the passenger seat. 
And then I've continued to like iterate around it for the last few years. And I knew that it needed to play a central role in the book. And so let me just describe a few of my thoughts about how identity and habits are intertwined and why I think it's important. So the first thing is true behavior change is really identity change. And what I mean by that is the way that you look at yourself often influences so many of the actions that we take each day. Like you come across a variety of experiences in your life and the way that you identify changes the meaning that you assign to those experiences. So two people walk into a room and there's a pack of cigarettes on the table. One person is a smoker and identifies as a smoker and they see that and they get this craving to smoke. The other person has never smoked a day in their life. And to them, it's just a neutral cue. It doesn't really mean anything. And the difference in how they respond to that cue has a lot to do with whether they identify as a smoker or not. Now, it's not purely psychological, right? Like there is nicotine, there's a biological loop there as well. But let's continue that example, but on the flip side. So for example, let's say you have two people who are trying to quit smoking and you offer each of them a cigarette. And the first person says, oh, no, thanks. I'm trying to quit. And the second person says, oh, no, thanks. I'm not a smoker. Same behavior. They're both turning it down. But the first person still identifies as someone who smokes and they're trying to resist the way they view themselves. The second person no longer identifies as a smoker. So turning that down seems like it's less of a task, right? Less of a sacrifice. Uh, It's in alignment. They're now the word you use, which I like is congruent. Their actions are now congruent with their internal identity. And the point that I am trying to make with this is that it's very hard to stick with a habit in the long run if it's not congruent with your identity. People come up with all kinds of plans. You know, They say, I want to become fit, or I want to make more money, or I want to reduce stress. And they have these goals, and then they have a plan for achieving them, but they don't change the way they look at themselves. And so then they end up self-sabotaging in all these different ways. And the interesting thing about identity then, the natural next question I had was, all right, if this is true, if having a particular identity influences your behavior, then how do we get those in the first place? Like, how does that identity get formed? And is there anything you can do to reshape it? And this is where I think we come back to habits and why they're useful. So some of that, some aspects of our identity, like whether you're tall or short, are relatively fixed physical characteristics. And so like, there's not a whole lot that you're going to change about that. But large portions of your identity are reinforced by the habits that you follow each day. And so, you know, if you study biology every Tuesday night for 20 minutes, at some point you turn around and you think, I'm studious. Or if you go to the gym every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday for six months, maybe in the beginning you don't look at yourself as a fit person or the type of person who goes to the gym, but at some point you cross this invisible threshold and you're like, oh, I guess I'm a fit person now. Or if you kick a soccer ball one time, you don't look at yourself as a soccer player, but you show up to practice every day for three years. And at some point, that's how you identify. This is how I became a writer. I was a science guy. I never looked at myself as a writer. If you went to any of my professors in high school or college, they would have been like, yeah, whatever. He's fine. Like he's not, they wouldn't say he's a great writer, but I wrote a new article every Monday and Thursday. And after doing that for a few years, then I got a book and now I had published this. Like, yeah, I guess I'm a writer. I guess I'm an author. You know, that's how I identify. And it was really the habit that instilled that. I'm almost positive you're an author. <laughs> I'm almost positive now. So my point here to wrap this up is that your habits are how you embody a particular identity. And so every morning that you make your bed, you embody the identity of someone who's clean and organized. Or each time you write one sentence, you embody the identity of someone who is a writer. And the way to upgrade and expand your identity, the way to reshape your self-image, the way to achieve this true behavior change of achieving identity change 
is to cast little votes for being that kind of person. I kind of like to look at small habits in that way. You know, it's like every action you take is a vote for the kind of person that you believe that you There's are. There's a chart in the back of the book that's sort of, sort of a spider web, like, is this good or bad? And you just want the direction. It's not that you're not going to ha- have a bad choice from right. time to time, but that you need the direction to go that way. It's like any election, right? Like it doesn't have to be right. a unanimous vote to win. And so not all of your actions have to be perfectly aligned. 51%? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In theory. But you know, as long as you can continue to cast the bulk of the votes and the majority of the evidence says, hey, this is the kind of person you are. You don't need to be perfect. But what you're looking to do is reinforce being that kind of person over time. And eventually you start to shift it and look at yourself in that way. And I think the key insight here, and this is where I think I differ a little bit from people who sometimes you'll hear people say like, fake it till you make it or something like that. But there's nothing wrong with fake it till you make it. There's nothing wrong with like thinking positive about yourself or whatever, but it's a short-term strategy, not a long-term one in my view. And the reason I say that is that you can convince yourself of that for a minute But fake it till you make it is asking you to believe something about yourself that you don't currently have evidence for. And we have a word for beliefs that don't have evidence. We call it delusion, right? right? Like at some point, the brain does not like this conflict between, oh, I keep saying I'm a fit person, but I don't go to the gym. And so my strategy is just slightly nuanced. It's a little different where I say, rather than letting the belief lead the way, let the behavior lead the way. Start with a small habit provide evidence of being that kind of person. And then eventually you have something to root this new belief in. That I think is exactly right. And I've actually written a blog post to that exact effect. Like don't fake it till you make it. Just do the work to start making it. Just go ahead. And you know, I've written a blog post every day for nine years. So, you know, that in the cerebellum, I don't know what the neurons, what is it, myelin? Yeah, I don't yeah, yeah. I don't know what that has to look like. Yeah. But for writing, I type horribly, but still I never write less than five hundred words a day every single day of my life, no matter what. At this point. I've you cast a lot of votes. Body yeah. of evidence that it's, you're a writer. It's almost Floris Foster Jenkins, you know, the woman. It's like you may say that I'm not a good writer, but you cannot say that I don't write. Mm. That's impossible because I've just done so many words. Right. I had a coach in high school who said confidence is just displayed ability. Yeah. And I was like, huh, that's interesting. You know, like you want to be a more confident free throw shooter, show up at practice and shoot a hundred of them. Once you make 10 in a row and yeah. you displayed your ability now, suddenly, oh, now I believe it because I've seen it. And that's really the whole point here with it's like, a really good point. I also do think that it matters as to what your identity is. I think that the incongruity between somebody saying I'm this and then not doing it causes them harm. Mm because they feel bad over that gap that they have. Oh yeah. And then you, I mean, people do this all the time, right? You feel guilty. You're like, oh, I wanted to lose 40 pounds, but then I wasn't able to stick to it and whatever. Yeah. I think that that's why in that section of the book, I say, rather than asking yourself, what is the type of outcome I want to achieve? Ask yourself, who is the type of person? It's such a powerful point. Right. So like, who's the type of person that could lose 40 pounds? Well, maybe it's the type of person who doesn't miss workouts. And then your focus becomes building that identity, even if you only do five pushups. And I'm glad you said that because that's one thing I wanted to say here for people listening to this. I think you would say, and you and I don't know each other, we just met. So this is me getting into your mind very, very early on. If you just got up and did one pushup every day, if that was your habit is to get out of bed, drop to the floor, do one pushup, you're starting to exhibit a vote for doing pushups and saying, I'm going to do this and become that. And you don't have to commit. I mean, so this is what I'm guessing you would say. To say, I'm going to go to the gym for three hours a day, every day for the rest of my life and only eat carrots and apples, Right. you're, you're, you're going to fail. But if you say, I'm going to swap out eating a hamburger at Wendy's for a salad at lunch, 
I mean, you can accomplish that. Mm-hmm. You can accomplish that. And I think people underestimate the small decisions like that. And the point in the book is so clear. Those decisions stack. And once they stack, you start to get the results. I want to get into the book, especially because it's so practical and tactical. You break the science of this down into four steps. I think Duhigg has three, right? What's the difference between yours and his? So it's the second stage in my four-stage model. He does not have that step. And there's a reason I'm asking you that is because I think that that step is critical and you spend time on it in the book. Duhigg's model, which is good, and I like his book, by the way, Q Routine Reward. And it's a great summary of this whole body of research that we could call like behavioral psychology or a behaviorism view of how habits work. And the basic idea behind that, it was like kind of initiated by Edward Thorndike and B.F. Skinner and like 1900s, 1930s, very kind of like rose and was like a really big part of the psychology world. And basically it just said behaviors are tied to cues that precede them and they are reinforced by rewards that come after them. So like if a rat is in a cage and you turn a light on each time before it gets a pellet, as soon as it sees that light, it expects, hey, I should like press this lever to get the pellet or Pavlov's dog, right? You ring the bell and the dog starts to salivate. And then the only reason that they do that is because they're rewarded at the end, right? Because they get the treat or they get the food. And that's a really robust body of research. There's a ton of support for it. And so I knew that had to be part of my model. But then there is a second body of research that's come in the last 50 to 100 years from cognitive psychologists that shows that, hey, not only do external things like cues and rewards influence our behavior, but also internal states like moods and emotions and your beliefs and your identity and things like that. And so I wanted a model that accounted for both of those influences. And I also had some questions that I felt like were like not fringe, but actually like fairly central to understanding how habits work. Like for example, the question, why would two people respond to the same cue in a different way? So like, let's say you have two people that walk into a kitchen and they see a plate of cookies and then one person eats the cookies and the other person, they see it. And we didn't know this when they walked in, but turns out they just finished eating dinner and they're stuffed, right? And so they see it and they're like, I can't eat any more food. Like I'm full. Now, according to the Q routine reward model, the habit of eating cookies should just follow naturally. As soon as you see the plate, you should eat them. But the point that I try to make is that there's a second stage, which I call craving, which is about how you interpret the cues and your interpretation changes based on your current state. So when you are hungry, you interpret a loaf of bread on the counter as I should make some toast. And when you're full, you interpret that same cue in a different way. And so you act in a different way. So to summarize here, my four stage model is cue, craving, response, reward, The cue is often visual, but it could be any of the five senses. It's the thing that catches your attention, like your phone buzzing in your pocket is a cue that starts the habit of pulling your phone out and checking to see who's calling. The craving is how you interpret that cue, and it can change based on your current state. The response is the action you take itself. And then finally, if a habit is going to be formed, there's some kind of reward. Now, there could also be a different outcome. There could be like a consequence, in which case you're not going to repeat the behavior again. But those four stages, cue, craving, response, reward, describe, I think, pretty much how every habit works and certainly a lot of human behavior. So in Ken Wilber's integral theory, which you and I were talking about offline, and now we're getting super nerdy here, so I don't know who's staying with us, but I put it in my book. The four quadrants, this is individual interior. So this would be cognitive, and this would be where Marty Seligman 
would fit here. And if you haven't read The Hope Circuit, have you read that? I haven't. I'm familiar with Seligman's work, but I haven't. That's his biography. It's really, really good. So a super good read. This is the individual exterior. So this is how things might work biologically as a cue. This is the interpretation on this side. And this is why I think Wilbur's work is so important is because it sort of gives you the idea of you need Skinner and you need Seligman. Right. And so Seligman was at war with the Skinnerians at the time saying it's not all Pavlovian. And he's right. But Ken Wilbur is always right because he's going to drop you in and say everything matters and it depends on the context. So I think when I started researching atomic habits, there have been a lot of models of human behavior over the last 100, 150 years. And I tried to track down everyone I could find. So I have this spreadsheet of like probably more than 50 different models of human behavior from psychology and neuroscience and a bunch of different areas, biology. And I mapped them all out. And broadly speaking, they fell into kind of two categories. The first category was this external one, this exterior one where it's like, hey, how are we triggered? How are we prompted to act? How are we rewarded for it? And the second category was more internally focused where it's like, what are the primal drives? What's our motivation? And my thought was, okay, these are all really smart people. They've got their PhDs. They've spent their careers in their field. And if all of these people who are super smart over the last hundred years have more or less fallen into these two paths, if I'm going to come up with a new model, it better include those things. Yeah. Because like no one of those people probably has the full picture, but we can be fairly certain based on the number of papers published and the number of researchers doing this kind of stuff that these are key parts of the puzzle if they keep getting returned to again. again. What Wilbur says that I think you would like, and you'll probably keep this, is that no one's capable of 100% error. Mm. You're just not capable of being completely wrong. Yeah. You know, they've got some part of the truth, but it's a partial truth. Right. And so you put two together. I'm impressed with your work, but putting in the cravings, I'm going to sort of move ahead on my list of questions for you. Are you familiar with Tony Robbins' Six Human Needs Psychology? Okay, so no. basically, I mean, it's, I know Tony Robbins. it's a riff on Maslow. Yeah. So it's certainty, variety, belongingness or love and connection, significance or importance, growth and contribution. Okay, so kind and, of moving and up that hierarchy of needs. So sort of a hierarchy of needs. It looks very much like Maslow. And when you get into Wilbur's work, you find Claire Graves and Graves and Maslow were together. And Graves has another values continuum that looks sort of like that, too. They all sort of figured out, and Maslow actually deferred to Graves later on and said that his model's far better than Maslow's. Hmm. He used to substitute teach for Maslow when Maslow was gone. If you haven't read Spiral Dynamics, that's no. something that you would It's so interesting. You would like enjoy. Things catch on, and then like the actual story is different or more nuanced. Yeah, Maslow caught on in Claire Graves' works, but Spiral Dynamics did not, even though it's all wrapped up in this kind of thing. But I think that that's the craving. So I think that it is avoidance of risk and pain for some people, or it's variety. It's the search for pleasure and it's belongingness. And so the cravings that you talk about, the reason I thought it was so interesting that you dropped that in there into the framework is like, what is that interpretation? What is it that I need? And when you see people who need significance, I'm not throwing any stones here, but they write books and (laughs) they become New York Times bestsellers and things like that. And so there's a craving, right? Because you don't go through all this work to do that if there's not something on the other side of it. And I don't know that people recognize. And I think if they were to do the work in the book and start to understand, well, what is it I'm really craving? Because it's not the cookie. Right. It's the variety. It's the state change. It's the, you know, it's something underneath there that you could get another way. And when I started to work on losing weight, no matter what I crave, if I eat like four ounces of chicken, I don't have any craving anymore. Hmm. So, you know, I could want pizza. Right. 
If I have four ounces of chicken, then it's like, well, the state changes there. And so it's gone. And then I don't know that we recognize that we're really trying to feed something else because subconsciously there's so much going on and the habit is so burned in. So here's a little nuance that relates directly to this, that I I was not expecting. I didn't know when I started working on atomic habits, but I discovered as I was like kind of unearthing this format, life often feels reactive. It feels like someone says something, I feel a certain way, or somebody does something and I, you know, act this way in response. But in fact, life is not reactive, it's predictive. And so what I mean by that is, you know, you just said like, oh, you're not actually craving the cookie. And my response would be, you actually can't because you don't have the cookie yet. So when you see a plate of cookies on the counter, what gets you to take action, to walk over and pick it up and take a bite is not the cookie itself. It's not in your hand. It's not in your mouth yet. It's the image that the cookie creates in your mind. And so the way that you perceive the experiences and cues in your life the meaning that you assign to them, the anticipation that you have, the expectation of what is to come is what motivates you to act. And in a more broad sense, we could say, to use your significance example, when I sat down to write Atomic Habits, I had somewhere in my mind this expectation, this anticipation of if I just suffer for another day and work on this hard, maybe it'll be a bestseller or maybe it'll, you know, get published and make a difference. Or maybe, you know, people will read it and start to use it in their work or whatever it is. But it was actually that prediction, that anticipation that drove me to sit down and type another sentence, mm-hmm. not the book, because the book wasn't finished yet. The book is the, it's not the craving, it's the reward. It's the thing that comes after the behavior. You know, the cookie is not the craving, it's the reward. It's the way that I would describe it. And this relates to sales as well, is that perceived value motivates you to act. Actual value motivates you to repeat. So when you make a sales call or tell somebody about your product, what you're really doing is trying to amp up the perceived value in their mind, make them think, hey, this is going to be amazing to work with you or to buy this. And so it's that that gets them to act. And then the actual value, what you deliver is what determines whether or not you're going to return to them for another, you know, another round to buy a product from them again, or to hire them for the next project or whatever. And business as with life, there's this interesting balance there, right? Because you need to promise enough that it's appetizing for them to act, but you don't want to overpromise so much that, you know, like sales promises something that product can't deliver on. Or right. Whatever. And whether you find something rewarding often has to do with how great the expectation was that preceded it. They're directly connected. It's actually craving that gets you to act, not reward. I think it's a critical thing. If people could recognize what their real craving is, what you would find out, I think, is that there's many, many ways to satiate that craving some positive, some negative, some neutral, which you have in the book. There are things that we do that are neutral habits, but you would understand there's choices as to how you meet that need. So you can meet the need for significance by what you called suffering. See, I love writing. I suffer when I'm not writing. When I'm not (laughs) writing, I wish I was writing. And that's just because I like, well, I don't like the writing as much as I like having written. Yes. I like the words on page and I see it and I'm like, there's words on a page. This is great. I want to get into something that's, again, just sticking with practical and tactical. Why is it so hard to start a new habit? What's the difficulty for people starting? And it seems to me, and you're an expert on this, bad habits seem easier to start and hard to get rid of. Good habits are harder to start and hard to keep. For sure. And that little insight there that you just shared, I think is actually very instructive. And I thought about this a lot when I was working on the book, like, okay, Nobody really, like, did you, when you first got a smartphone, probably don't even, most people don't even think about it or remember it, but you didn't really have to convince yourself to check your phone more, you know, like the habit just formed itself. And so the question that I had was, well, what can we learn from that? Like, why is that? 
And bad habits can actually be very instructive in that way. So let's take the habit of eating a donut, for example. Most habits, good or bad, produce multiple outcomes across time. So if you eat a donut, the immediate outcome is often great. You know, it's sugary, it's tasty, it's really enjoyable in the moment. It's only the ultimate outcome, six months from now or a year from now, if you keep repeating that habit, that's unfavorable. And with good habits, it's often the reverse, right? Like going to the gym right now is you sweat, takes effort, sacrifice. It's, you know, months later that you see the reward. And so a lot of the challenge of building good habits and breaking bad ones is figuring out how to take those long-term rewards of your good habits and pull them into the present moment. So you feel the pleasure of it right then. And sometimes you can do that, but a lot of the time what you need to do is find an alternative way to be satisfied. So if you were to look at me from the outside, you might say, oh, you know, he seems to like have all this willpower and go to the gym or whatever, but it doesn't feel like that to me. What it feels like is, oh, you know, I've been sitting at the desk all day. It'll feel good to move my body or some of my friends are at the gym. I get to go hang out with them. Or I always like this post-workout high that I get where I feel good after the workout. And so I'm really much more focused on how it makes me feel in the moment than in the long-term reward that I'm looking for. So anyway, you brought up a point there that I thought was relevant for that. But your real question was, why is it hard to start and what should people do? And if I'm going to recommend one thing to start with, I would usually recommend what I call the two-minute rule. And so I'm glad you got to that is that you take whatever habit that you're trying to build and you scale it down until it takes two minutes or less. So read one book every month becomes read one page or do yoga four days a week becomes take out my yoga mat. And the whole idea here is simply to make it so easy that you can't even really say no to it. You know, that like you just give yourself permission to show up and become that type of person who does something each day. And this sounds It sounds kind of silly to people. Like there's my favorite example of it. So I had a reader who lost over a hundred pounds and he did it by doing something strange. He went to the gym, but he wasn't allowed to stay for longer than five minutes. So he would get in his car, drive to the gym, get out, do half an exercise, get back in the car, drive home. And it sounds ridiculous to people because they're like, okay, clearly that's not going to get in shape. But what you realize is that he was mastering the art of showing up. He was becoming the type of person who went to the gym four days a week. And once he was that kind of person, then he had options, right? Then he could become the kind of person who works out for 45 minutes or does all this stuff that we actually have as our goals. This is a key insight about building better habits, which is that a habit must be established before it can be improved, right? You have to make it the standard in your life before you can worry about optimizing it. You have uh, read before bed each night becomes read one page. Do 30 minutes of yoga becomes take out my yoga mat. <laughs> like that is so zen, like, well, take the mat out. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's a starting point. Get I that part mastered. People think it sounds silly, but I like for my workout, the only thing I focus on is change into my workout clothes. If I've done that, I know everything else is going to happen as a side effect. You know, like it's already pretty much decided. We'll drive to the gym, get under the bar, do all that stuff. So it's really about like making the first action easy about like automating the, what I guess we could call the entrance ramp to the year behavior rather than focusing on everything on the highway, the whole big ambitious stuff you want to do, just master getting on the entrance ramp. I used to tell people the hardest climb I've ever done on a bicycle was getting onto the bicycle. <laughs> like that was the hard part. And then once you were on, I mean, you, your lungs sure. start opening up and you start sweating. That and mostly reminds me, there's a great quote by Ed Lattimore where he says the heaviest weight of the gym is the front door. <laughs> yeah. Like, That's, that must, yeah. that thing must weigh 20 tons because right? yeah. Yeah, it's so hard to get in. If you wanted to eliminate a habit, can you riff on how someone might eliminate 
cues that trigger them. So they're triggered by some cue because they've given some meaning to it. Mm -hmm. So we know that. But what would you say, and you've done a really good job making this whole book practical, tactical. So Practical, tactical, how do you get rid of cues? So you're basically just looking for ways to reduce exposure. And I would say that fundamentally that comes down to what I call environment design. And that can be either the physical environment or the digital environment. So this is an interesting point to me because I hadn't thought of it in this terms, but it's interesting. So you're talking about all of your environments, right? So restructuring in this case, I'm not talking about social, not talking about the people around you, but I am talking about the physical environment or the digital environment. So what you see on a screen or what's on your desk at work or your kitchen counter at home. So let me go through a few examples. If you want to stick to a diet, don't follow a bunch of food blogs on Instagram, right? You're like constantly (laughs) being prompted to do the thing you're trying to avoid. Or if you want to spend less money on electronics, Don't watch unboxing videos on YouTube or follow the latest tech review blogs. Like you're just continually having to overcome the stimuli in your life. For a lot of people, they feel like they watch too much television or spend too much time like binging on Netflix or something. But if you walk into pretty much any living room, where do all the couches and chairs face? They like all face the TV. So what is this room designed to get you to do? The most obvious, frictionless, available thing is turning on the TV or same thing, keeping a television in your bedroom, you know, like you sit in bed and then you look up and it's right there. So you could do a variety of things here. You know, obviously you can take the TV out of the bedroom or in the living room, you could put the TV inside a wall unit or a cabinet. So it's like behind doors and you're less likely to see it. You could take the remote control and put it inside a coffee table or in a drawer and maybe put a book in its place. You could take one of the chairs and turn it so it's away from the TV and not facing it. And then you could also, and this is the second thing that you can do for both reducing cues and this strategy also simultaneously makes it harder to do the bad habit, which is what I would say is called increasing friction. So basically you're just looking to put more steps between you and the bad behaviors like BJ Fogg, who's a professor who writes about habits. I mentioned him in the book as well. He liked popcorn and didn't want to stop eating it entirely, but he took it out of his pantry, walked down the hallway, went into the garage, got on a ladder and put it on the highest shelf in the garage. Now, if he really wants to eat it, it's only going to take 60 seconds. He can go out and get it. But if he's designing for his default action, for his lazy behavior, he's not going to go out there and get it. And so the really the idea here is how can you restructure the environment to make those cues less obvious and to increase the number of steps between you and the unproductive behavior? Interesting idea. I think some people frame some of the habits that they need in just that way. Like to go to the gym, well, I'd have to get my clothes. I'd have to put my shoes on. I'd have to get in the car and drive to the gym. I'd have to go into the locker room. Then I'd have to take a shower. And so they talk to themselves in a way that creates the friction from Mm -hmm. some of the habits that they want. Yeah. And they reduce the friction on the other things that they don't want. Humans are interesting that way, huh? I've noticed, so like just some other little examples for myself. If I buy like a six pack of beer and I put it in the front of the fridge or like on the first shelf, right where I can see it as soon as I open the door, I'll grab one each night and have one at dinner just because it's there. But if I take that same six pack and put it all the way on the bottom shelf, all the way in the back where I can't see it when I open the door, sometimes it'll sit there for like a month. And so my question is like, well, did I want a beer or not? You know, like, and on the one hand, it seems like I did, but the truth is so many of our behaviors are just a response to the environment that we're We don't have time to talk about free will, but because you're local, we are going to do that. We're going to come back and sit here again, and we're going to talk about free will because that may not be you deciding to have the beer, and that would be an interesting conversation to have with somebody who reads and thinks like you think, did you even want the beer? Right. (laughs) Or did your subconscious mind direct itself to do something else? A couple more things I wanted to get through while we're still together. What was the most difficult habit for you to start personally? 
there are still quite a few that I struggle with. So like one that I'm struggling with right now is for, I guess, lack of a better term, I call it like a power down routine. So for whatever reason, I get to like nine or 10 PM each night and I sleep just fine, but I kind of have this rule where I decide I'm not going to cheat myself on sleep. And I know that on my good days, I do better work when I get up early in the morning. And so it gets to 9 or 10 p.m. and I get the second wind where I'm like, well, maybe I'll just answer email for like 20 minutes or something. And then I turn around and it's midnight or one. And I'm like, well, what's it going to be? Are you going to wake up early and be productive or are you going to not cheat yourself on sleep? And almost always I choose to sleep and not cheat myself on that. And then, you know, but if I go to bed at one, I'm not getting up till nine, right? So there's this challenge there. And so I think for whatever reason, there's this little point of friction with the power down routine that I need to figure out like what to do with that. Just do what I do. Get up at 4.30. And then by the time you get to- By 9.30, so I promise. Yeah. yeah, you're going to bed. Yeah, yeah. There's no doubt about it. You won't have a, your power down routine will be like, I'm going to bed. Boom. There's another strategy that a friend of mine uses that I thought was good. You can buy what's called an outlet timer. And it's like 10 bucks on Amazon or something, but it's like a surge protector, except you can set the specific time for it to kill the power from that outlet. And so he plugged his router into it, his internet router, and then had it kill the power at 10 p.m. each night. So it's like 10 p.m., internet's off, can't watch Netflix, time to go to bed. That's a good way to do it. Yeah. You know, just you're done because you're done. It's over. So I like little strategies like that, that force your hand, you know, that kind of automate things. Yeah. That's a good one. Last thing, have you had to eliminate a bad habit and what was it and what did you do? Yeah. I mean, there have been all kinds that I've had to get rid of. Right. And there are, the hard thing is whenever you hit like a transition point in life, there seem to be new ones that crop up. Right. So I'll give you the first one that came to my mind. The place I lived before we just bought a house. So I'm moving into a new one. So there's kind of like new habits, good and bad popping up associated with that. Well, the last place I lived when we moved in, there's a McDonald's like three blocks from where we were. And just because of how the roads went, I would have to basically take this same road anytime I wanted to get to the highway or get somewhere or whatever. So I'm passing this thing all the time, you know, probably once a day, if not, you know, five times a week at the minimum. And after we had lived there for about like two months, I love McDonald's fries. So I gotten into this habit where like, whenever I go past, I'm like, wow, I'll just get one and then like go home. And so one day I pulled up to that light and I had this conversation with myself where I was like, wait a minute, is this going to be Like, is this going to be my life now where every time I'm here, I'm going to go in there? So I started going a different route and it took me through a business park and it was not as convenient and it took an extra three minutes or whatever. But I was like, I'm not going to let that be my new standard. So yeah, so I had to change. That was a good decision on a bad habit. I don't think those French fries are good for you, even though they're they're wonderful. I'm still going to get them like once a month, but I don't eat them every day. I go through the Starbucks every morning for a venti dark roast every single morning (laughs) and and without fail. And I never drive by it. And I'll go out of my way to make sure I get to drive by it because (laughs) that habit's deeply burned in. Okay. So here's a complicated thing for listeners. We're going to send them to amazon.com or Barnes and Noble to pick up the book. That'll be in the show notes. Send them to James Clear. Send them to Atomic Habits, send them to both. Well, so just jamesclear.com is the best place to go if you want to check out articles or things like that. I have them organized by category. So you're welcome to just like poke around, see what interests you. And if you want to go specifically to the book, you can either click on books while you're there or just go to atomichabits.com. And there's a bunch of worksheets there. Right. So on that page, you can get bonus PDFs on how to apply the ideas in the book to parenting how to apply the ideas in the book to business. There's a habit tracker template for tracking your own habits and then a couple of the resources as well. But anyway, all that is at atomichabits.com. All right, we'll send people there. Thanks so much for coming on. Awesome, thank you. (laughs) 
If you like this podcast and it's valuable for you, please go out and give us a five-star rating on iTunes so other people can find us. And until next time, I'll see you in the arena. Audio editing and show notes by podcastfasttrack.com. Get 15% off your first month by mentioning this show.